Hello and welcome to Commonwealth Street, Michelle Gia's independent research podcast, where we try to ask simple questions about complex systems, in this case, the Detroit education system. You are listening to episode 5, Data is a Form of Attention. Part one, do we need more data? So we live in an age of quantitative data, or I should say the promise of quantitative data. In the United States, the astronomical wealth that has been created by digital services like Google, Amazon, Netflix, etc., has been accompanied by the rise of new cultural myths about the technology that has created that wealth. Targeted mass advertising and the technology that makes it all possible, big data. Today, I would argue that we are seeing the rise of the idea that big data or even more data will help us, perhaps even save us in our complex societal issues like healing the world's oceans or solving climate change or improving public schools in the United States. So for today's episode, I just want to ask, do we think that this is true? Do we really need more data in order to solve these issues? So to start off, I think it's important to say that some data is almost definitely important, right? We know that policymakers need to make decisions based on scientific data. And so a lot of important work literally cannot be done without the right data. And we know that many institutions exist for the sole purpose of designing and running the studies that produce this data. And I also recognize that a lack of data can lead to despotism, false promises, a lack of accountability, all sorts of terrible things that we want to avoid. So all of this can be said to be true of the world of public education in the United States and by extension to the city of Detroit. So it's probably important to say that we should have some data. But at the same time, I want to argue that thinking about data only in terms of its quantity obscures some deeper problems that it's probably important to wrestle with. For example, what kind of data counts and who decides? What gets left out when we emphasize quantitative data and why does that matter? And finally, does the data we use in some way determine the futures we can create while looking at that data? And I'm going to say that again. Does the data that we use in some way determine the futures that we can create while looking at that data? Well, spoiler alert, I think the answer to that question is yes. I think that the, that the data we use actually ends up being really, really important to determining what kind of futures we can even imagine in the first place. Which leads me to part two, data as a materialization 
of attention. Let us get a little musical gear shift. So before we can answer the question of whether more data is good, let's just take a step back and ask, what is data? Well, at the simplest level, a datum or a unit of data is a unit of information that comes from observation. Sometimes that unit is numerical or quantitative, like it's 29 degrees Celsius today. And sometimes that unit is not numerical, like I feel sad today. The same situation or context can produce many different sets of data. For example, as I'm writing you today from my warm room upstairs in my house, you can take the temperature of the various parts of the room, you could track me and my roommate's pulse rates, you could track my movements across the room over the entire hour, you could measure my typing speed, or you could ask me to make a self-reported assessment of how are you feeling every five minutes or so, and see how that changes over the course of writing this post. Which brings us to a less understood or at least less talked about aspect of data. Data always involves a choice of what to pay attention to. Now, this probably seems banal at first because of course we choose what data to gather, but let's take this foundational idea and just sit with it for a moment. We recognize that as individuals, what we pay attention to matters in any given situation. So much so that we have sayings that mark this in the collective consciousness. For example, hmm, do you see the glasses half full or half empty? We generally recognize that to quote, look on the bright side of life involves taking the same set of events and trying to see them in a new way. I would also argue that the way we see the world also determines how we behave and what choices we make. In other words, the way we see the world isn't just about our internal experience, but it in fact influences what we do and who we become. For example, seeing the glass half full about a person may lead to attempting to form a relationship, which may in turn change your life. So we recognize that as individuals, the data that we pay attention to matters. But the same is also true of organizations, institutions, and movements. The data we pay attention to doesn't just determine how we see the world, it determines what we decide to do with and to the world. And if, as is often the case with the various industries surrounding public K-12 education in the United States, the folks who decide what gets done aren't really embedded in the systems they're designing for, these sets of data have more power than ever. They're literally all we see when we make decisions. 
and we can only make decisions to change the data, not to change the state of things in the world. So at this point in my blog post, for those of you following along online, I have posted a meme that I'm going to try to describe here. Um, and it's quite hilarious. It uh, was a meme that a friend of mine found that a K-12 teacher had posted to Facebook. And this teacher actually used to work in public schools in Detroit. So in this image, you have um, a bunch of people standing around one person and that one person is digging a hole and they're working very, very hard uh, and they're working by themselves. And there's a bunch of other people standing around, um, sort of sitting, watching, looking like they're kind of judging what's going on. And there are labels on these people. So the person in the hole is labeled teacher and there are labels on the people standing around the person. And I'll read those labels. Associate superintendent, director of academic support services, educational services coordinator, director of instructional coaching, director of strategic planning, communications director, leadership development director, curriculum specialist, accountability coordinator, executive director of instruction. And at the bottom of the meme, there is a little label that says, we think we see what you're doing wrong. We're hiring a consultant to fix it. So I like the above meme a lot because it sums up the frustration of a public school teacher being told what to do by those who aren't doing it themselves. Now, there are multiple readings to this situation, right? On one hand, there's the natural frustration that arises from the unequal distribution of work and being told how to do your work by those getting paid more than you to do less. And I would argue that's probably the most obvious reading of this meme. But I think there's another truth behind this that's worth pointing out. The people who aren't doing the digging don't actually know what to do next. The things they suggest don't come from an experience of digging. They might say, hey, you'll work faster if you do this, but not realize that this suggestion involves holding the shovel in a certain way that actually makes blisters. The real issue here is not just the imbalance of power, but the fact that the imbalance of power is mirrored by an imbalance of information, much of which is either unable to be articulated into words because it's intuitive or blocked from expression due to one-way communication channels. Said in a less fancy way, it's the fact that those who command do not know and those who know cannot say. Which leads us to another point. Often we like to divide the world of data into quantitative, numerical data, and qualitative, not numerical data, with enormous implications for your work based on what category it falls into. Whether you work with quantitative or qualitative data can determine the standards your work is measured by, the grants and money available to you, the projects you can do, or even how you are seen as a personal or a professional. And in general, at the time of my writing this, 2021, in the United States, most of the world of design research recognizes quantitative data as having more legitimacy than qualitative research. But I think this divide, 
even though it has such enormous implications for research and researchers, is in fact misleading. In fact, all research involves a qualitative element, a non-numerical decision about what to pay attention to. The choice of looking at graduation rates and test scores is just that, a choice. And even though these choices can have enormous consequences for our work and legitimacy, and because of this, they're often not talked about as choices, at their core, they still are. And I often overhear quantitative researchers talking about working with the data that is available because it's so difficult to gather data that is fair and valid in a scientific sense. And in a related but slightly different vein, you'd be laughed out of many rooms in the education world if you decided not to look at graduation rates and test scores if those data were available. Once data become institutionalized at the highest levels of government and or the academy, they become the terms of a conversation, like a language. And if you don't speak that language, you're shut out. Which is a pretty scary proposition if you want to suggest, like we do on this podcast, hey, our language is not very good at capturing some truths I want to talk about. So. Can we add these new words? Maybe we need a new poetry of data, one that demonstrates better forms of paying attention. And just like it's possible to create new words and new languages and new ways of combining those words, I believe it's possible to shift through shifting our data, some of our conversation when we talk about education in Detroit. It just requires some imagination. And okay, it probably also requires patience and resilience and moral courage, but you get my point. Which leads us to part three, some new dimensions of attention to consider. Let's take for granted that we need new forms, better forms of data. What might they look like? Well, the real work has to be done in concert with talking to actual stewards of the education system, those who must live with that system, who rely on it in their day-to-day -day lives. So teachers, students, but also parents and guardians, community members. And I do plan to do a small part of that work this summer. But just to start to sketch out our blank canvas, Here's some concrete examples of how we might imagine adjusting our measures to better fit what students and families actually care about. The first is time. How far out are our measures? Do they pertain to the next four years, like graduation rates, or a lifetime, or even further out than that? Is this about generational success or a concrete proximate milestone? The second is for whom? How inclusive is our data? 
Who do these milestones and measures pertain to? Is it just students or also families, their support systems, peers, siblings, or broader communities? The third is measures of success. What does success actually mean in this context, and who gets to decide? If a student wanted to start a business with their high school knowledge, and they did, does that count as a success? And should it? The fourth is measures of failure or shame. What's shameful or to be avoided according to the participants and the stewards of this system? While it may appear invisible to the metrics we have now, basically what do folks not want to happen? And finally, preferred futures and who gets to decide. Detroit as a city made headlines several years back because Ingrid LaFleur, who's wonderful, ran for mayor on an Afro-futurist platform. One of her slogans then and now was the statement that artist Alicia Wormsley crafted for a billboard in Pittsburgh. And that statement is, there are black people in the future. This is such a compelling statement because it implies that when we build preferred futures, we need to accommodate black visions in those futures. So whose visions of the future are being reflected here? Did Detroit as a city decide that it wanted this percentage of graduation rates? Or if we ask the residents of Detroit, would they collectively come up with a different view of the future? It's easy to think that we know what power looks like, but most of the way we think about power in pop culture involves overt gestures of violence, control, or the movement of resources. And yes, this is one way that power works, and we shouldn't deny that. But there's another way that power works. And this way often happens right in front of our noses. Power is who decides what we pay attention to. Power sets the conditions of whose ideas are worth listening to, whose feelings matter, and who gets to be a real citizen, and who is only a citizen by name. What this means is that in its small and humble and incomplete way, if we change the data we look at and the attention we're paying, we get a chance to change the power balance, even if just for a moment. So I'm interested in data that redistributes the question of what should we pay attention to? Should economists decide that? Should the state of Michigan decide that? Should education consultants decide that? Or should Detroiters also be involved in deciding that? Which leads me to why I practice qualitative research. Qualitative research, at its best, gives us the ability to create new measures of data, ones that actually reflect what the true stewards of a service, technology, or system care about. It involves redistributing power in the form of who gets to decide what we pay attention to. And that is something I can get behind. Which leads us to our fourth and final part of today's episode, what is a steward 
versus a user. Finally, I think it's worth mentioning or elaborating on the issue of a steward. A steward more than a classic user, which is defined by someone who uses the product, service, or system, is actually a subset of your larger set of users. A steward is defined by me as a user who does not have access to alternatives, whether for lack of alternatives or the means to access them. It is my humble belief that a turn towards stewards as opposed to a broader set of general users will push design as a discipline to be more ethical, more aligned, and ultimately better for the world we share. So here's a quick set of examples to illustrate that. Let's take a Californian sixth grade student who will enter the school system in Detroit for a summer or two, but ultimately go back home. This person is a user, but they're not a steward because they have the ability to leave the system at any time. Their well-being does not depend ultimately on the system. Now let's take a local Detroit business owner who doesn't have school-aged children. So they're not sending students into the system, but this person is looking to hire local graduates for her business. This person's not a user, but they are a steward in the sense that even though she's not experiencing the school system directly, she relies on it and she can't access an alternative. I have a feeling that in this work, stewards are going to be just as, if not more important than users. And I'm looking forward to testing out that theory soon. But that's for another episode and another time. For today, let me just end by saying that I believe that every researcher in every context needs to answer the question of why do you do research? Researchers have been producing and interpreting data in education, for example, for a while now, and it's not always easy to see how that data actually changes the world for the better. And in the case of public education, so many of the battles that are fought in this world are about creating more data or reinterpreting the data that exists. So why do I, as a researcher, think that adding more data to the conversation will benefit anyone other than myself? Well, for me, this is part of my answer. I do research because when it's done well, I feel like it can allow new and better answers to what should we pay attention to? And that, in turn, can make room for futures beyond what we have imagined, what I have imagined, what anyone has imagined alone. Commonwealth Street is written, edited, and produced by myself, Michelle Gia. Our music is by Blue Dot Sessions. And if you want to read the original text for today's episode, you can check out the blog post that it was based on. It's linked in the description of this episode. If you want to support us, you can visit us at patreon.com slash m-i-x-u-e. Until we meet again, stay thoughtful, stay curious.